All right, listen, let's uh, find our Bibles and let's open them to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, page 1529 if you're using that book rack Bible, but maybe you have a smartphone, a tablet, a Kindle, uh, whatever you've got, a device that has Scripture on it. Let's find our way to Matthew chapter 20, please, verses 1 through 16. We are biting off a lot in this message today, and you look at your outline there, there's six points that we're going to be going through. We'll be camping out on a few of those points more than others, uh, but I hope that in all, uh, we'll be able to get through it because it's exciting stuff. And so just turn to the person next to you right now and say, you need to listen fast for the next 30 minutes. (laughs) Don't you dare slow me down by listening slow, okay? I need you to listen fast. Today's message essentially comes right out of the last words that Jesus gave last week. And you remember we sort of left it last week when he said the first will be last and the last first. And sort of the confusion that a lot of people have, what does he mean by that? And he's actually this parable, this story that we're about to read answers what that means, that the last are first and the first are last. So you'll kind of enjoy that. It's a parable of a landowner and a vineyard. There's hired help, a foreman, a story that takes place. And it kind of centers around the vineyard, okay? But I want to give you a heads up. This story is not about grapes. It's about grace. And we're going to learn about grace and a generous God this morning. So let's read together and see what God has for us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them out into his vineyard. About a third hour, the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who had been hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men you who are hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. All right, now remember, Jesus is using this story to illustrate for his disciples what they can anticipate in terms of receiving after having left all to follow Jesus. Now, many times we've taught in the parables, and I want to just take this moment to remind you that when you interpret parables, you're looking for a central meaning. Parables are not really meant to be allegorized where every single point in the parable has something to do with our Christian life. But parables do lend insights into other parts of our lives and perhaps even to the essential meaning of the parable. 
And without any question, hands down, the single principle that shouts out to us in this parable is that God gives the same abundant grace to everyone who comes to him. God gives the same abundant grace to everyone who comes to him, no matter what. No one gets more than someone else. No one gets less than someone else. All because of God's generosity and kindness. He's a loving, benevolent God who gives to us, watch this, what we don't deserve, the Bible calls that grace, and doesn't give us what we do deserve, judgment, that's called mercy. And this is the God that we serve. God is a generous, gracious God. And this, this parable illustrates that in so many ways. So if this parable is about God's abundant grace given to everyone who comes to him, which is really a picture of our salvation, I saw some insights from this parable that will help us see how beautiful and grand our salvation really is. And they come in the form of words uh, that you'll see in your outline there or if you're taking notes. The first one, verses 1 through 7, is going to capture this picture of an insight related to invitation. Would you just say the word invitation with me? I mean, clearly the landowner in the parable represents the way God comes to us and calls us into his family. Clearly, this is Jesus' reminder to us that salvation is always initiated by God. We don't initiate our salvation. We'll see this even greater later on in our sermon this morning. Now, the story is built around a very commonplace experience. Landowners in this day, and Jesus is simply reflecting what many people would see and understand, landowners who had large crops to harvest oftentimes came to the end of the harvest and didn't have enough workers. So they would go out in harvest time, they would go into the marketplace, and they would look for day laborers. We see day laborers in our culture too sometimes. And he would find people that needed work, and he would say to them, would you work in my vineyard? And so here in the story, he goes out at first light, six in the morning, and he begins to invite people into the work. He calls them into a work. Now, when I think about salvation, I think of this word invitation, God has been doing this from the beginning of time, hasn't he? I mean, God has been calling people to himself. He starts at the very beginning, we've got Adam and Eve. Of course, a relationship with God was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and fell out of favor with God, expelled from the Garden of Eden. And all the way through the Old Testament, we have God showing up and giving redemptive opportunities for people to uh, be in right relationship with Him. But it isn't until He comes to Abraham in Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant and He says, I'm going to make your descendants like the, like the stars of heaven, like the, the, sea, the, the sand of the seashores. And you are going to be great and, and, and raise up a nation. And of course, Abraham and Sarah, of course, at that time had no children. There was a son of promise offered and yet the son had not been born. And so Abraham goes into Hagar and that's, you know, that whole story. But God has been making covenant with his people, and his first covenant relationship with his people were from the descendants of, of Abraham uh, through the promise, through Isaac. And God begins to build a people, and we see the, the history of God's people all the way through. And now, I'm just saying from a macro view, God starts this salvation history, and we see it in Abraham and the sons of Abraham, and we see that all the way through the patriarchal period. We see that in the judges, the kings, even through the prophets. God is still using his people, and yet they're disobedient, rebellious. We come to the New Testament. Uh, the prophet John comes along and preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and repent, 
And, and then, of course, he's the forerunner to the Messiah. Jesus steps on the scene. And we see that through the rejection of Israel for Jesus being the Messiah, God then, his providential plan turns to the Gentiles. And we read through the New Testament that, yes, salvation was offered first to the Jew, but then to the Gentile. So God is carrying out his redemptive plan all through history. And you remember in the Gospels at one point, Jesus said in John 9, 4, he said, he said now is day. And we, so we work the works of God while it is still day. For night is coming when no man can work. And I wonder sometimes if we look at salvation history, if we could look at it like a day, we might ask ourselves the question, what part of the day are we in right now? I mean, if there's a night that's coming when no one will work, what part of the day will it be? And if in this parable we have the story of God going back out into the, to the marketplace and inviting people, workers, into the vineyard, if that's a picture of salvation, if that's a picture of God inviting us, then we know that we are much closer to the end of the day now than we were even back then, right? And how close we are, what time is it? I don't know, but I think it's fascinating. There's also a picture, I think, of a personal sense of when God calls us into the vineyard. I mean, the reality is, and if you're taking notes, you may want to just take a note that, that we respond to God's invitation at different times in our lives. Some of us very young. I was so young when I gave my life to Christ, I can hardly remember a time when I didn't follow the Lord. I was in elementary school when I gave my life to Christ. A few months ago, we had a celebration service where there was a, a young kid up in the baptismal, and he couldn't have been more than 10 years old. And do you remember he stepped up and he said something like, when I was this a 10-year-old said, when I was really young, I realized I needed Jesus in my life. <laughs> and we all kind of chuckle like we did just there because we think, wow, how, how, how young would he have to be to be young at that point? You know, like, and the, the great thing about this parable is it shows us that God does go into the marketplace at all different times, the 6, the 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., the 11th hour, showing us that also beyond the macro of history where God is calling people to himself and inviting people just like he's inviting people right now in the world and every place we go, God is busy at work, but he's also calling us individually sometimes at early times in our lives too. And we just heard about camp and middle school students and high school students coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I would call that probably the early stages of life. Let's just take a little inventory here. How many of us gave our lives to Jesus? We came to a place where recognizing we need to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and make us a new creation, and that happened in our lives before we hit the age of 20. Let's just raise our hands and see who that is. Wow, that's a lot of us. That shows us the fertile environment of young hearts that God intentionally goes after in that stage of life. How many of us came to faith between 20 and 40? We gave our lives to Jesus Christ between 20 and 40. Wow, look at that. Quite a number of people there too. Uh, well, who are those people? Those maybe the 9 a.m., the 12 nooners, you know, where the, the owner of the vineyard goes out and asks people in. Some of us, how many of us came to faith in Christ between 40 and 60? Anybody there? Okay, a few. I see some hands around. Great, way up there. How about between 60 and 80? Anybody coming to faith in Christ? Wow, a few more hands up there in the back. How many between 80 and 100 have given their lives to Christ? <laughs> Anybody? Well, let me tell you the story. I think I've told it before, but George was uh, right here. All right, wow, awesome. How many over 100 given their lives to Christ? Anybody? <laughs> I'm, I met George 
um, through a friend of our church who had invited me to go by his house. It was actually to visit his wife, Mickey, who was on her, quote, deathbed. And the family member that goes to our church just asked on behalf of her friend if I would go visit the parents, Mickey and George, and pray with Mickey. So I said, of course. So I went by after church one Sunday, and I discovered, wow, they live right around the block from me. Very convenient. And so I remember George opening the door and and a little suspicious, okay, here comes a pastor, and okay, you know. So he leads me into where Mickey is in this little room where she's in a hospital bed, and, and he basically introduces me and then walks out. He doesn't want to have really anything to do with the religious talk that's about to take place. So Mickey was a follower of Christ, and she wanted Scripture and prayer, and she knew that she was in her last days. And at that time, they thought she wouldn't live maybe for more than a few weeks. And Mickey ended up living for a year and a half after that experience. So because it was so convenient, every now and then I would stop over on the way home from church. It became sort of a pattern, and I just began to to really fall in love with this family. And it was interesting because I saw George's heart soften. You know, at first it was sort of like he brought me to the room, left. Eventually he stayed in the room for a little while while we talked a little, you know, just fun stuff about life, what's going on, then we open the Bible, he would leave. Eventually he would stay in the room while we read the Bible and then he would leave. Then eventually he stayed in the room while we read the Bible and prayed. And I could see how God was opening his heart. Well, Mickey did pass away. Uh, George asked me if I would do his wife's service, which I was honored to do. We had a beautiful time of celebrating her life. But George had not given his life to Christ. George was 79 years of age and never given his heart to Christ. He was, didn't want anything to do with the Lord. But George kind of liked me, and he kind of connected with me a little bit. And so after Mickey passed, I kind of kept the same practice of just stopping over every couple of weeks and after church and checking in on George and how he was doing. And eventually I learned George had some needs. He had some things that needed to be done around the house. And I said, well, I'm not handy, but I'll help you. And, uh, and so, you know, I can break something as good as anybody else. <laughs> so he, he'd have me do that, and, and I eventually kind of helped him with his yard and became his gardener for a period of time. And just had a friendship that just kind of grew. And I love this man. And every time I mowed his lawn or was, was, you know, fixing something that I broke in his house or something like that, I would just pray, God, open George's heart to know you and understand who you were. And, and it wasn't long after that that uh, one day I was sitting with George and I said, George, you know, I'm really concerned. I, you know my heart for wanting you to have a relationship with Christ. And he just kind of put his hand up. I don't remember exact words, but he said something like, hey, it's done. I've given my life to Jesus. I said, whoa, George, that's amazing. You know, so we had a little time of celebration. And George, I said, George, you got to come. So George attended church. He sat right down here. He'd come on Sundays. Bless his heart. He had his own physical issues. But at, at 80 years of age, after pushing God away from his life, George came to know Christ. And then George passed away. And I had planned to tell George's story because I was thinking about the way people come at different stages in their life. And George is one of those, he's that 11th hour guy, you know? I mean, he's in that stage where it's not too long. And And so I was preparing to tell his story, and last night as I was going over my notes, I was thinking about George, and in my heart I thought, I wish I had a picture. This is how God works. Jenny, the daughter, sends me a picture last night. I open open my email, and she says, I've just been thinking about, George has been passed now for about, I don't know, three years, maybe four years. Time goes by so quick. But she said, I was just thinking about the blessing of my dad coming to faith in Christ and just want to thank you. And remember this picture? So I'm going to show you the picture she sent me last night. And this is us sitting at his bedside. This is hours before George goes to meet Jesus. And Jenny's there, and I'm praying with, over George. 
And I thought, wow, Lord, you know, God is hearing my stirring in this. And, and I thought, you know, if I just had a picture, and boom, there it was in my inbox. It was like, <laughs> that is so weird, you know. But maybe somebody here needs to know that story, that even later in life, People can come to a place where they give their lives to Christ. You might be an elderly person. You know somebody, maybe a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent that needs Christ. Don't give up. Keep praying, asking God to bring people alongside because this is the truth about our great landowner, God, is that he goes into all seasons of life and he's inviting people to come and follow him. This is a great thing. I see not only the invitation piece, but I see the motivation piece. If you're taking notes, verse 3, 5, and 6 gives something about this motivation. Can I show you again? Look at the text. Notice in verse 3, these guys that were doing nothing. And then again in verse 6, people standing around and he asks them, why are you standing here all day long doing nothing? You know, sometimes we forget We forget that all the work done outside of the purposes of God in our lives amounts really for nothing. Did you hear what I said? I mean, like you can can be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and have created all the widgets in the world to do this or that. But listen, if your purpose was not tethered to the plan of God for your life, all that stuff is going to burn. All that stuff is for nothing. And God, this is the beautiful thing about a generous, gracious God, is he calls us into a life of purpose. Why are you standing around doing nothing? I see this a picture of God bringing us to salvation into the work that he created for us. Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean for you to have purpose in your life that you've got to be in church ministry. You've got to be a pastor or missionary. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that until your work, whatever your livelihood is, is tethered to the plan of God in your life, then what you're doing really doesn't account for anything eternal. And so think, think about it. You could be a salesperson. You could be an insurance salesman. You could be a, a bank clerk. You could work in the grocery store. You can work at the post office. You could be a lawyer. You, you could even be a politician. And... <laughs> Tether your work to the work of God. And guess what? All of a sudden there's meaning and purpose. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that while work is a gift from God, if not tethered to God's purpose in your life, it's meaningless. It's a chasing after wind. On the other hand, Paul the Apostle writes in Colossians chapter 3 and he says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for whom? The Lord. Not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So whatever you're doing, your work ethic becomes a work unto the Lord. And when your work is tethered to the purposes of God, no matter what vocation you're in, no matter what you're doing in your life, then everything you do suddenly has incredible meaning. Isn't that amazing? And you're not just doing time. You're not just punching a clock. You are there representing the king of glory. And your work ethic then translates into better productivity for whoever you're working for or for whoever is working for you. This is an amazing work. I wish we could take a little more time with this. But I see motivation here. It's sort of like sometimes we might think, hey, wait a minute. Maybe some of us have wondered, how much can I do? I've come to Christ so late in my life. In fact, I remember George telling me that. What can I do? I'm an old man. You know, some of us feel that way. 
we feel like maybe it's too late. But what I want you to understand is that God has perfect timing, and God simply invites us into the work, and he's got a work that is going to be amazing for us, and it motivates us to realize that even if we think our time is short, we've got all the time we need because God superintended it to be just this way. There's a curious passage in 1 Corinthians 7. I'd like you to turn there if you have time. You have time because, (laughs) trust me, you have time. Because you're listening so fast. It's amazing what you're doing here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, because this is a passage I get a lot of emails about, like, what in the world is this saying? And I don't understand this. So I'm going to clear this up for you. I'm going to try in a short minute here. And this goes right along with what we're saying right here in this text about God's salvation being a picture of motivation. Paul writes in verse 29, he says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Say that with me. The time is short. That means we don't have a lot of time. But watch this. He goes on. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Well, we better clear that up in a minute. (laughs) Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. You know what Paul's saying there to the Corinthians? To the lazy, critical Corinthians? He's saying, you got to get your game on and get into the work. It's, the time is short. So that doesn't mean if you're married you should you know, leave your wife. It means there should be such an urgency in your life that as if you were not married, that what occupied your mind was the things of God in your life. That, that doesn't mean to not be a good, uh, a good parent, a good husband, or a good father. This is a good father right here, just ministering <laughs> to all of us in a beautiful way. It means that we live in such a way that we don't get settled down in our lives. Do you get it? Does that make sense? I don't believe Jesus is calling us to slavish busyness, but he is calling us to intentional involvement, a thoughtful commitment, a weighed assessment of our use of time, treasure, and talents. There's a movie I watched years ago. It's called The Edge. I don't know if you saw it. It was a story about two guys that go down in a plane crash. Actually, there's a few of them, and the whole story becomes sort of this survival, and they meet this grizzly bear along the way, and it's It's a pretty crazy story of survival, but the underlining plot of the story is that the old rich guy, played by Anthony Hopkins, and the young, you know, uh, go-getter guy who's having an affair with Anthony Hopkins' wife, he decides to use this unfortunate experience to do away with Anthony Hopkins, okay? So that's kind of the plot of the story, and in a strange twist of events... Alec Baldwin, who plays the young, you know, go-getter guy, he's mortally wounded when he tries to kill Anthony Hopkins. But in a stranger twist of events, Anthony Hopkins becomes the guy that does everything he can to save this guy. And he pulls him to the very end, the last, one of the last scenes in the movie, he's sitting there on the, on the edge of this river in deep Alaska somewhere, and, and they're just almost ready to be rescued. The helicopter, you can almost hear it in the background coming, and this guy's on his deathbed, and this is, I'm telling this story because this illustrates to me, I've never forgotten this line, Alec Baldwin looks up, he's there dying, and he says to him, he says to um, Anthony Hopkins, he says, I've never done one thing with my life. I thought, man, 
That's, that's a story that is played out by the millions every day. People who get to the end of their lives and realize they never did, did one thing. They might have ran a company and they did this and that in their lives, but they never tethered the purpose of their life to the plan of God in their life. And this is a, a tragedy of all tragedies. It's a very dark moment for people to come to that place. And I've talked to people personally that come to that place of realizing, what have I really done with my life? So in salvation, I see invitation. This is God going out, and he's still doing it today, still inviting. I see motivation. He's saying, hey, quit doing nothing with your life. Let's go. Get work. Get to work. My vineyard. Maybe he's calling some of us to that today. Here's a third thing. This will go rather quickly. There's also something here related to consolation. Say the word consolation. Verse 12. Uh, these, are, these are the guys in verse 12 where it says, uh, uh, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Um, there's a picture here that is sort of painted that if we've worked hard all of our lives, uh, we sometimes forget that when it comes to salvation, if our life has been difficult, if it's been hard, aren't you glad, beloved, that the day's almost over? I mean, this is not going to be for eternity, that there is a time to stop. I think of what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, where he talked about the armor of God, and one of the pieces of armor was the helmet of salvation, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, and one of the pieces of armor is the helmet of salvation, which protects us from, from that violent blow that would, would cause us to, to you know, lose our lives. So in the same way, salvation, the helmet of salvation, is the reminder to us that no matter how hard life gets, we are given the promise of eternal life, and it's only for a short time that we're in this hard season. I remember when I was a high schooler, one of the men in the church where I attended as a boy across the bay invited me and a few of my friends to come and work on his vacation place up at Clear Lake. And he said, hey, I need you guys for a week or so. Could you do it? It was during the summer. I'll pay you. I'll feed you. Okay, great. So we, we go up there. And I remember pulling in about five of us in a little Volkswagen Beetle. My friend drove, and we get out of the car in his driveway. It's 110 degrees. It's in the mountains around Clear Lake, dead of August. It was just dripping sweat. And there are trucks there, dump trucks, you know, and they're dumping out gravel and rock and all this stuff. And he's standing there with a big smile. Oh, I'm so glad you guys made it. We're going to be moving all that rock around this week. <sighs> so we got to work. And I remember by noon of the first day, I was so exhausted. I could hardly stand up. I was just exhausted. And all I kept thinking about is, when is this day going to be over? <laughs> but then I realized I had to go back to work the next day. And we did that for a whole week. And I'll never forget, every day it was just sort of like, how many more minutes until quitting time? Now, I share that, and we got through the week, and I'm sure it gave me great grit for a long life of hard work. Uh, you know, I mean, there's great lessons to be learned in all that, and I thank God for it. Um, you know, we didn't get paid that much, and I, I got a gripe about that. But anyway, <laughs> see, I'm just like these guys in the parable. I just gripe. Anyway, so uh, where am I going? Um, I'm so glad that life is like a day. No matter how hard it gets, think about our brothers and sisters in, in countries where it's illegal to be a Christ follower, and if they find out you are, you're going to be killed. You're going to have your head chopped off or, or sword driven through or burned at the stake or something. I mean, that's our world. That's the world. 
Or you might be in a place where someone decides that out of love for their God, they're going to massacre as many people as they can. This is the world we're in. And I'm glad that no matter how hard it gets in life, and it gets hard, and some of us, I think we would admit we have a very cushy experience, but sometimes in our own existence, health issues, problems in relationships, and all the rest, we can sometimes fall into the, the, the paradigm of thinking that life ought to be happily ever after. Life ought to be lived happily ever after. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie says in Southern California. He says, Christians don't live with a happily life happily living ever after. We live with the reveling in the fact that we can live happily even after. Even after a hard life. Even after a hard season. Even after a desperate time. So that's, that's consolation. If you feel tired today, hey, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. I mean, maybe it's only going to be another 50 years for you. You know what I'm saying? And 50 years in eternity, what does that mean? Not a whole lot. So keep perspective. Uh, another thing. So I see invitation. Oh, by the way, let's, let's show Job 7. Can we show Job 7? I love this. I love the book of Job. Uh, it reminds us of the reality of hard things and hard times. And Job writes, he says, Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, some of us, I mean, some of us are going, that's me. Yeah, you find yourself on the pages of Scripture everywhere. And God shows us that this is real life. This is the way it is for followers of Christ sometimes. But aren't you glad it's just for the day? Night is coming when no man shall work. I see invitation, motivation, consolation. Here's a fourth thing. I see action. And we'll just kind of fly through this. But I see that the workers are called into action. He goes and he says, hey, how about you? Get into my vineyard. Boom, they go. Nobody says, ah, you know, thanks, good idea, but how about tomorrow come by? They don't do that. And I think when we think of our salvation, this is a picture of God's effectual call. The Bible tells us that, in fact, Jesus said it, and some of your translations have this phrase, it's not in the earlier manuscripts, but it's also in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, that many are called, but few are chosen. And God's inviting, inviting, the message goes out, you're hearing it today, people are hearing about the gospel, people hear all the time about Jesus and the gospel, but not everybody follows because there's an effectual calling. When God puts his hand upon somebody to be saved, they're going to get saved. It takes all the pressure off of us. We're just called to proclaim the gospel, declare the gospel, and let God do his work. That's the beautiful thing. That's why we compel people to give their lives to Christ. Not because we think we can change somebody's destiny, but because as we call people and invite people to salvation, as we declare the gospel truth that none of us are deserving, that God's uh, riches and grace are available to us by faith and a righteousness by faith. As we do that, God just uses that as a trigger for those he's called. We're going to see that at the end of the message, even in a greater way. So, like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.2, he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That's awesome. So, if you're hearing the voice of God today in your own heart, don't wait. Like the vineyard workers who did not say, maybe later they went to work for the landowner. And this is a picture of our salvation too. 
Invitation, motivation, consolation, action. There's also something about compensation here, and this is where it gets a little fun, verses 8 and 9. Say the word compensation. Okay, so he calls, the landowner calls the forum to settle up, pay the workers starting with the last ones hired, and move toward the ones hired first. Now, this is where the story takes an unexpected turn. This is where Jesus is going to tweak the story to get the attention of those who are listening, all because he wants to illustrate what salvation and the, the gift of salvation is really about. And this is where everything kind of stands uh, still for a moment because as he shares what happens, the guys that were hired last come first and the foreman pays them a denarius. Now the only ones you remember in the story that were promised a denarius were the ones that were hired at the first hour. No one else was promised anything but that the landowner would pay what was right. So here come the last guys. They've worked an hour. They're standing in line. They come up. Okay, we work from, you know, five to six. And the guy says, great, here's a whole denarius. That's a day's wage. Whoa. The guys in the back of the line are thinking, wait a minute. Those guys only worked an hour, and they got a whole day's wage. Awesome. So they keep working up to the line. The guys that worked from three, six o'clock on, Here's a denarius. Ah, cool, great, all right. And then the guy's 3 o'clock, noon, 9 o'clock. And you can see there's like this trickle-down disappointment happening to where the last guys that had worked all day in the heat of the sun bore the burden of the day. They step up, and they get their full wage. But what does it say in the text? It says, it says they became... Uh, they, became, uh, they began to grumble, verse 11. They began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired the last hour, only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that the landowner was completely honest and fair and just because he paid to the penny exactly what he promised, but he was generous with others. Now, Let's be honest. I, I think if we were, any of us were in that scenario, we might feel like these guys did a little bit too. We would feel like, gee, I worked harder, I worked longer. Why don't I get more than those guys? If this is an illustration of salvation, then it rightly poses for us what so many times we hear when people complain about our gospel. I've had this happen a million times. Here's how it goes. Somebody walks up and says, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're telling me I need a relationship with Christ, but I don't necessarily feel like I need to follow Christ. I'm a good person. I've raised my family. But in the story of the gospel, you're telling me, here's what I'm hearing. I can be a good person all my life. I can take care of my family. I can do a good job. I can pay my taxes. I can, I can be a good citizen in my community. I can do all that stuff. And one day, I'm going to go and meet God. Meanwhile, there's another guy out there who lived a completely opposite life. He was a rebel from the word go, hooked on drugs and alcohol and became a violent person. He abused people. He raped and pillaged. He ended up doing a, a sentence for life and then ultimately a, the death penalty. And a chaplain walks into the cell about a month before he's to go to the chair and he shares the gospel with this guy. And this guy suddenly is enamored by the reality of God's great love for him. And you're telling me that as this guy's walking to, the de to the, his death penalty, the, the electric chair, God somehow speaks to his heart and he realizes he needs to turn his heart over to Christ. And in the steps walking into that room where he sits in the chair and is strapped down and the electricity goes through his body, you're telling me, the man says, 
that that person's going to stand before God and be welcomed into heaven and I'm going to be rejected even though I lived a good life? That's what your gospel's telling me? Now listen. If the gospel is based on what we do to earn it, then God's arrangement for us is totally unfair. Did you get that? If our salvation is based on something we do, it is totally unfair. But if the gospel and the promise of salvation is not based on anything we could do, then listen carefully, then salvation is merely God's kindness to some and God's justice to others. No fault with God. The man that's perturbed, and if you've ever heard that, has anybody else heard that besides me? That scenario? Yeah, most of us have. We have to kindly remind people that if we're arguing, we're like these guys who somehow feel like we're deserving because of something we did. That's not the gospel. That's what Jesus said last week to the rich young ruler. It's not about your sense of goodness because if you compare your goodness to the God of this universe, you're not even a postage stamp thickness on a sea depth of God's goodness. So this is the instruction. This is what we see, the beautiful reality of what Jesus has done. That Jesus has given us salvation He has compensated us with a salvation that is not based on what we do. And that's the instruction that we find in the end of this parable. And this is why Jesus comes down to saying in the very end, the first will be last, the last will be first, and the first will be last. None of us deserve. We are all undeserving sinners. What we do deserve is God's judgment and wrath. What we do deserve is hell and damnation. But out of God's kindness and mercy... He opens the door for salvation by faith in His Son, Jesus. And when we walk through that door, whenever we do, whether young in life, middle in life, later in life, in your 80s or 90s, if you respond to the gracious gift of God, then you receive the kindness of God. And you don't get any more than anyone else that receives that kindness You don't get any less than the person that received God's kindness as a a teenager or as a third grader. Now, this is a parable that is not describing the way God chooses to reward. I think there are rewards that the Scriptures talk about. This is not a message on rewards. This is a message on the nature of our salvation. And aren't you glad, beloved, that we're all given the beautiful promise of eternal life through faith in Christ, nothing that we have done ourselves. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you realize, wow, really? I could place my faith and trust in Christ and bypass the judgment of God and receive eternal life? Yes! That's what this parable teaches. And while it looks to you and like maybe a lot of other people in your life that you're really last, you can end up being first by the gracious goodness and kindness of our Savior. Are you grateful for that, beloved? Let's go to the Lord right now.